Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong, and I'm flying solo again today. Today, we're going to be talking about another sequel. Now, the reason I want to talk about this sequel in particular is because while it w there's some interesting production details on the first two, the third was such a train wreck that it directly led to where we are at now. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man 3, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 3. I told y'all back when I did the retroactive review of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy that I would be getting to Spider-Man 3 once Halloween and all that was over. Well, here we go. It was, of course, directed by Sam Raimi, which, as I stated beforehand, Sam Raimi has done a lot of different things. Uh, he did the Evil Dead franchise, the first Darkman movie. Movie A Simple Plan, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Drag Me to Hell. His, probably his closest upcoming film that he has coming out was actually going to be Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That's right. Sam Raimi's been brought back to Marvel. It was produced by three people. However, the main one we're going to be talking about is Avi Arad. Avi's done a lot of... Marvel projects, not necessarily in the MCU, but also later in the MCU as well, including Daredevil, uh, the Ang Lee Hulk, Punisher, X-Men 3, and also Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. However, he's also done Ghost in the Shell and the upcoming Uncharted movie that's, funny enough, starring another Spider-Man actor, Tom Holland. And it was written by both Sam Raimi and his brother Ivan. Now, as I said before, this is the third movie in the, in the series. It was made on a budget of 258 to about $350 million. It, The figure kind of varies there because they're not sure how much they spent on advertising, and they did a lot of advertising for this. And it pulled in over $894 million at the box office, making it, at the time, the highest-grossing Spider-Man movie, and it would not be topped until Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, basically, in this movie... Peter has told MJ that he's Spider-Man, and as such, we get to see, you know, a more confident Spider-Man as the city is starting to embrace him, he has the girl of his dreams, he has everything that he could want, and then, of course, it all goes wrong between the introduction of the black suit, the symbiote, which gives him the black suit, and then eventually Venom, uh, the return of his former best friend, now as a villain, the new goblin, Harry Osborn. And also the inclusion of Thomas Hayden Church as the Sandman or Flint Marco. This movie got pretty mixed reception. Um, many of which did not like it. Like There was a lot of good that came out of this. There was a lot of bad that came out of Spider-Man 3. A lot of things that had been done to death in memes, vines, joke videos, all kinds of things. Uh, and the thing is... For all the negatives about this, were it not for Spider-Man 3, not even with Spider-Man 1 and 2, but were it not for Spider-Man 3 the way it went, we wouldn't have ended up getting the Amazing Spider-Man series, which in turn led us to getting the MCU version of Spider-Man, as well as us getting Venom, the upcoming Morbius movie, and several others. Uh, and as I said before, this was the highest grossing at the time Spider-Man movie, and would remain so for 12 years. Spider-Man, Peter Parker, was played by Tobey Maguire. Now, Tobey Maguire's first uh, theatrical credit was in Pleasantville, but then he's also had a brief moment of fear and loathing in Las Vegas. He was in Ride with the Devil, Seabiscuit, uh, The Good German, Brothers, The Great Gatsby. 
And I'm going to add a disclaimer on this because it's not flat out guaranteed. It's widely believed, but they've kind of done a good job keeping it in their hat. And knowing my luck, they'll drop the trailer for the next Spider-Man movie within the next several days. And I'll be proven correct or incorrect one way or another. But it's heavily believed that Tobey Maguire will reprise his role as that version of Peter Parker in Spider-Man No Way Home. Mary Jane Watson was played by Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst, of course, is probably best known for Interview with the Vampire, Bring It On. But she was also in Little Women, Jumanji, Wag the Dog, Small Soldiers, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, Wimbledon, Marie Antoinette, which I know several people that do not like that movie. <laughs> it's also rumored that she will be appearing in Spider-Man No Way Home. Harry Osborn, now known as the New Goblin as well, was played by James Franco. Now, James Franco, of course, had been in Never Been Kissed, Annapolis, Pineapple Express, Milk, Eat, Pray, Love, 127 Hours, which is a true story, and I actually lived in the state that took place in. Uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which that is a fantastic Planet of the Apes trilogy. Oz the Great and Powerful, The Interview, and most recently, The Disaster Artist and Why Him. However, he got his start on Freaks and Geeks. And he's directed other movies, and his younger brother uh, is also an actor as well. You've probably seen him in things like 21 Jump Street and Neighbors. Uh, the Sandman, Flint Marco, was played by Thomas Hayden Church. And Thomas Hayden Church has had a pretty varied career. He's appeared in Tombstone, George of the Jungle 1 and 2, which is funny because they recast everybody else in George of the Jungle 2. Uh, he briefly was in Monkey Bone. He was in Lone Star State of Mind. He won an Academy Award for Sideways. Uh, he was in Over the Hedge. He was in Idiocracy, Easy A. He was also in 123 episodes of Wings. And much like Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, it is pretty heavily rumored that Thomas Hayden Church and this Sandman will appear in No Way Home. This version of Eddie Brock, uh, Venom, and I put Venom in air quotes on this one, uh, was played by Topher Grace. Uh, Topher Grace roast fame without question on that 70s show theatrically his biggest successes he's been a part of were win a date with tad hamilton and the movie interstellar although you can hardly call interstellar a topher grace movie that's a matthew mcconaughey movie uh the character gwen stacy was played by bryce dallas howard now bryce dallas howard got her start uh in commercials that her father directed her father of course is ron howard of happy days and andy griffith show fame uh she was also in apollo 13 the Ron Howard live-action Jim Carrey Grinch movie, The Village, Lady in the Water, Terminator Salvation, The Help, and most recently in the Jurassic World series. She's also very well-known as being a very... She's a big voice to bring attention to issues with postpartum depression because she herself suffered from severe postpartum depression with her first child. And she she's made sure that it's known that, you know, this is a very real thing and it's a very, very big thing. You know what I mean? Uh... Captain George Stacy, her father, was played by James Cromwell. James Cromwell, of course, played the owner of the titular pig in Babe. He was also in The Green Mile, Secretariat, L.A. Confidential, and he was in Species 2. Aunt May was once again played by Rosemary Harris, who was mostly a theater actress. However, she did get an Oscar nomination for her role in the 1994 movie Tom and Viv. And lastly, the main one to note, J. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson was played by J.K. Simmons. Of course, J.K. Simmons is probably best known between this movie and for his role on television shows Oz, Law & Order, where he played Emil Skoda. He actually appeared in three different Law & Order series, as well as voicing Omni-Man in Invincible. In addition to that, he's been in Juno, The Jackal, The Ref, Hidalgo, The Mexican. Uh, 
Burn After Reading, and probably his biggest caliber movie he was in as a like a real powerhouse in was Whiplash, which is a fantastic movie. But he also appeared in Justice League, where he portrayed Commissioner Gordon. He is the first of the original Sam Raimi characters to have appeared in further Marvel projects because he appeared in Spider-Man Far From Home, and he's also appeared in other uh, material related to it. I don't want to go into any more detail because I might spoil something that was very recent. Additionally, Dylan Baker reprised his role as Kirk Connors, who would become the Lizard at some point. Uh, did not happen in this movie. Uh, Willem Dafoe returned as the Green Goblin. Uh, Cliff Robertson reappeared as Ben Parker, his, you know, Uncle Ben, and this actually turned out to be his last role and last time on the big screen because he actually died in 2011. The Daily Bugle crew returned, all of them. Uh, Joe Manganiello came back as Flash Thompson. Elizabeth Banks came back as Betty Brant. And Bruce Campbell returned in this movie in his third different role. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment. Uh, Bruce Campbell, of course, in the first Spider-Man movie, appeared as the wrestling announcer. Bruce Campbell, for those of you who don't know, does a lot of work with Sam Raimi. He played Ash Williams in the Evil Dead and Army of Darkness movies, as well as Ash versus Evil Dead. He returned in that. And he even had a very brief post-credits scene that he did in the 2013 remake of Evil Dead. So he's done a lot of work with Sam Raimi, so he, li he likes to work with him. He also appeared in Spider-Man 2, where he was the rude usher at the uh, play that Mary Jane was at. Well, he appeared in this one as a rude maitre d'. This has been confirmed by several sources by this point. He was Quentin Beck. He was, he was going to be Mysterio. That's why he was in all these different movies. Unfortunately, it did not happen. Now, of course, this being the third movie out of the series, the first two, the first one covers his origin. It covers his dealing with the guilt over his Uncle Ben being killed, becoming Spider-Man, dealing with the Green Goblin, the Green Goblin's ultimate death, and Harry swearing revenge, Harry Osborn, rather, on Spider-Man. Second movie picks up about a year after the first movie. And in this, Peter is struggling internally with himself, who he is and who he wants to be. And it starts manifesting itself in his powers, not working as well. Of course, he also has school issues. He has girl issues because Mary Jane is engaged to somebody else. I covered briefly how I felt about their relationship in the first two movies on the retroactive review episode again that there's there's almost no chemistry between the two almost no conversation between the two so for to be taken seriously of him pining over her just isn't really a thing uh his powers come back doc ock gets involved and he's his secret identity is revealed to harry osborne in the course of this movie which of course leads harry to having tremendous internal conflict over you know that's supposed to be my best friend he is visited by a hallucination slash vision of his father, which leads him to discover where the Green Goblin stuff is. And Mary Jane finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man in this movie. At the end of the movie, he, or rather she, leaves her fiancé at the altar and runs to his apartment. And there's this moment when he zips out the window and she's smiling and the smile slowly disappears from her face. And it's very, very reminiscent of that scene in The Graduate when Dustin Hoffman and the, the bride get on the bus and they're laughing, having left the wedding and everything, and the laughter slowly dies because the realization, the reality of what is going on sinks in. Uh, 
when it came for production on this movie, Sam Raimi, of course, he, him and Ivan wrote this, he felt that it was most important that, you know, you see that Spider-Man is still dealing with his guilt over Uncle Ben. But at the same time, he's beginning to believe himself to be a perfect person, a sinless hero. And the idea is this movie should bring him back down and show him that things are not that black and white. Things can be a lot grayer than this. And Sony actually announced this movie in development in 2004, a full two months before Spider-Man 2 even came out in theaters. They were that confident in Spider-Man 2, as well they should be. For a very long time, Spider-Man 2 was my favorite comic book movie. It was extremely well done. Raimi had decided that the film would explore, you know, again, Peter learning that he's not the cut-and-dry good guy he thinks he is. Uh, they decided to bring back Harry Osborn into this to conclude his story, uh, as well as, while not exactly fathering, following his father's uh, legacy, building from there. Uh, Sandman was brought in to be the primary antagonist, and Raimi found him to be the most visually uh, fascinating character, and, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Now, of course, in the comics, Sandman, for those of you who don't know, Sandman, Flint Marco, is a petty criminal. Like, yes, he's he's enhanced, he's not normal, but at the same time, he's not ever been a real problem for Spider-Man. And they decided that they were going to change some of this and expand his background and give him a backstory to be the one where it's actually he was the one who killed Uncle Ben, not Carradine. The, the hijacker, not the hijacker, rather, the mugger, the, the guy who held up the wrestling thing. like That's always been the main mythos that that is the guy who killed Uncle Ben and set Peter on the path he became Spider-Man in. But they decided to do this to not only increase Peter's guilt because, you know, the other guy died, but to challenge his simplistic perception of what the events were. Uh, Raimi initially described the film as this is Peter, MJ, Harry, and the Sandman. And the overall theme is one of forgiveness. Like, that's the that's the idea here. Like, we've built, we've had the first movie, which was becoming that hero. The second movie, which was establishing that he will always be that hero. And the third one is coming to grips with, just because, with you being the hero, forgiveness has to be a part of that journey as well. Now, that all being said, Sam Raimi did want a secondary villain for the, for the movie. Uh... Yes, the new Goblin was not considered the secondary villain, and Venom was not initially planned for this. Uh, he, ben Kingsley was in talks to portray the Vulture. Ultimately, that decision was undone. They, they decided not to go through with that, and that's eventually what gave us, you know, Michael Keaton as the Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming. Another issue I feel like that the studio had on that is that Spider-Man, those three movies, the same Raimi Spider-Man movies, had a fantastic tie-in series of video games. Uh, Spider-Man 2 being probably the best of the three, being the first truly open-world experience one had in New York, to the point that the island of Manhattan was 100% recreated. Right down to little corner stores and everything. And in the first of those games, you deal with the Vulture at one point. And in the second game, you can actually still see the Vulture's feathers on, on top of, the, of a building. So I think that might have played a big part in that. Avi Arad convinced him to include Venom. Raimi does not like Venom. He initially disliked him and felt that the lack of the humanity of the character was really, it turned him off of it. It's like, there's, there's only so much you can do with that. You know, you're asking the audience to believe a lot of things with this suit being an alien and the way the alien suit had to be introduced and the way it was introduced in the comic. 
you know, it, he felt that, you know, it wasn't going to be, he didn't like him. Ultimately, the studio felt that Raimi had been using his favorite villains. And they wanted a quote-unquote modern villain to deal with. Which not only meant the Vulture wasn't going to happen, but it completely scuppered their plans for turning Dylan Baker into the Lizard in this film. Or for uh, Mysterio having a bigger presence in this. And ultimately Mysterio ended up having most of his presence in the second uh, movie, or game rather. Uh, to that end, they wrote Eddie Brock to be kind of a mirror to Peter, but like a, a, a dirty mirror, you know, representing paparazzi, tabloids, things like that. And the producers added Gwen Stacy because a staple of Sam Raimi's films has always been the quote-unquote other girl. Like, there's always the main character and his girlfriend, but there's always that other girl. And they wanted to enforce that and put that in here. Raimi didn't want to do that either because this is not one of his typical movies. This is Spider-Man. This is a very simple thing. Especially to include a character like Gwen Stacy, who in the comics, Gwen Stacy is Peter's first love, not Mary Jane. They established Mary Jane being his first love in this one, in this series. So to include Gwen Stacy afterwards, Raimi felt that that was a little mm, not too great about that. The scriptwriters at this point, with everything that the studio had mandated and everything that Avi Arad had decided, that the film needed to probably be split in two to be more faithfully done and more accurately done to what they were wanting to do. However, they could not come up with a satisfactory intermediate climax, like a good spot to end that second movie, or that first movie, rather, in order to lead into a second movie, which Hollywood still doesn't have that right because of the way they ended uh, The Hobbit, Desolation of Smog, and then started Battle of Five Armies. You don't end the movie on Smog flying to Lake Town and then Smog's Siege of Lake Town and Death being in the prologue before you even see the opening titles. They would have had a very similar issue with this, so ultimately, Raimi and them pared down on the script and worked on it and tried to do everything they could to make it fit into a single movie. That being said, Raimi was less than thrilled with the ultimate script. He felt that three villains, an unnecessary romantic triangle, and alterations to character motivations in general was going to convolute the story to make casual moviegoers have issues with it. Ultimately, he was overruled. There was too much money to be made, they felt, on this. And, I mean, to this day, Sam Raimi does not care for the third Spider-Man movie, but I'll get to there again. For casting, uh, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst were contracted for four films. James Franco was contacted for three. And in addition to that, you know... J.K. Simmons and everybody else, they were all contracted for multiple appearances. Tobey Maguire was really looking forward to playing in this movie because he's like, now I get to play a Spider-Man that is far more confident, less timid. There's going to be... There's, there's, there's a challenge here because we haven't gotten to see that yet, and he was excited to try and go after that. Kirsten Dunst also looked forward to this movie because she was going to get to explore the romantic relationship with Peter Parker, as well as... Uh, Harry Osborn, and dealing with, you know, all the issues that come from, okay, well, now I'm with Spider-Man, now he has to do all this. James Franco just liked having more to do. <laughs> Full stop. Thomas Hayden Church was approached after his award-winning performance in Sideways. And despite the fact there was no script written yet, he signed on, he agreed, he had, yep, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. He was eager to portray the character because he wanted to portray the character as a villain with a conscience. You know, 
the sad realization that he's a monster. And they have this sense of regret. And the ultimate, the end result of forgiveness was going to resonate with the audience. He specifically drew inspiration for that from Lon Chaney's portrayal as the Wolfman, as the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he, he really want, he felt that, that the forgiveness and everything else, he felt that he had the chance to really make this resonate with the audience. He worked out for 16 months, gaining reportedly 28 pounds of muscle while also losing 10 pounds of fat for the role. That is a tad dubious, and I'll explain that in a moment because Topher Grace has a similar thing. Uh, he perform impressed performers with, or producers rather, with his performance of in, his role in Indian Good Company, and was a giant comic book fan and had read the issues with Venom as a child as they came out. Reportedly, he worked out for six months and put on 24 pounds of muscle for the role. This is dubious because human composition, the way people are built, exercising and working out, Thomas Hayden Church being in his late 30s, early 40s, putting on 28 pounds of lean tissue and losing 10 pounds of fatty tissue in 16 months, while doable, is extremely difficult. For Topher Grace to have gained 24 pounds of lean mass in six months, I don't believe it. Maybe 10, maybe 12 pounds in six months, maybe. And, you know, he was younger, so it's possible that helped. But when you look at him in the movie, he's still very much Eric Foreman. He's not, he's not big and muscular, and he's never going to be, and he never should be, and that's understandable. But there, there's a real problem in Hollywood with actors who get bigger for roles in exaggerating how much bigger they get. And that is definitely, definitely a case here, in my opinion. And again, I stress that that is my opinion. I could be wrong. Uh, he also chose to approach the role, he, Topher Grace, a bit of it as an addict, and having had a bad childhood, which he felt would have really differed him from Peter Parker. Now, the playing it as an addict thing, the reason that that struck me when I read that was that that's exactly how Tom Hardy approached the role in his turn as Venom. But Tom Hardy, unlike Topher Grace, actually has been an addict beforehand. So I think he was much better, much more accurate at the way he portrayed that. Uh, that being said, Topher Grace hated the costume. It was uncomfortable and would take hours to apply. It had to constantly be coated with something to give it a bit of a wetter look. And the fangs also bruised his gums and just generally made him in a bad mood. Now, that being said, he did say that he felt that that helped him get into character. So, you know, you, you got to take the good with the bad. Bryce Dallas Howard felt that it would be a challenge as Gwen Stacy. And her, cat, her, her role that she did in The Village and to a lesser extent Lady in the Water is what really drew Sam Raimi to her for this role and what made him offer this role to her. Uh, she felt that it'd be a challenge because, again, Gwen is Parker's first love. However, in this film, she's the other woman. She wanted to portray her as a potential future love for Peter Parker and actually did a lot of the stunts that she was in, many of which she was not aware she was pregnant during. Like, you see her where she's getting yanked by wires or falling down or whatnot. Bryce Dallas Howard was several months pregnant at the time, and she, like two or three months pregnant, and she did not know it at the time. Um, of course, like I said, J.K. Simmons, Rosemary Harris, and many of the returning cast members had signed multi-film deals, many of them under the auspices of future growth in their roles, specifically in the, among them, 
Dylan Baker's role as Kirk Connors, and Bruce Campbell. Willem Dafoe, funny enough, was filming another movie very nearby, and when that was discovered by Sam Raimi, he agreed to come back and briefly cameo as the Green Goblin, and he did it for no money. He just generally enjoyed that. Uh, it's also more than rumored, it's confirmed that Willem Dafoe will appear in Spider-Man No Way Home. They're, the newest poster they dropped of it, you can see the Goblin in the background. Plus, you hear his laugh. He's got a very distinctive laugh. So I'm, I'm very much excited for that. Uh, when it came time to film, camera crews spent the first two weeks advanced filming in order to get l shots down. So that for later CGI, which whether it was Spider-Man swinging through, the sand coming through, whatever the case may be done, they, they wanted to get that done in advance to make it as easy as possible. And they actually had done that originally in two I have no problem with the effects that were in this movie. I want to make that abundantly clear. The effects in this movie are top-notch, and the music is still very good. Um, principal photography began January 16th in 2006 and wrapped in July after over 100 consecutive days of filming. They filmed in Los Angeles until May. Then they moved to Ohio for the armored car chase scene involving the Sandman and Parker's first real interaction with one another. Then they moved to Manhattan after that to finish out the rest of it. All this travel put Sam Raimi under a tremendous amount of strain. It also made things difficult for the cinematographer. Raimi was having to constantly travel back and forth to different sets while the cinematographer had to deal with the idea that the black suit Spider-Man, Venom, and the new Goblin, all of which were wearing black clothing or black styled suits, were most of their actions were done at night. This makes things pretty difficult to film. Uh, even though they wrapped in July, they ended up doing some reshoots and some extra fi uh, filming in August in order to get more action scenes, and they wrapped again in October. Over the next month or so, they did do some more SF uh, special effects shots, but they, they really felt like they were done. Then, unfortunately, in January of 2007... More shots were done for the Sandman, which actually affected the way the Sandman's origin was portrayed in the movie. Uh, the reveal where Sandman comes back after being turned to sand and reforms himself as a humanoid through sheer force of will... Thomas Hayden Church did the motion capture for that, and you can really, as crazy as it sounds, you can see the emotion in the sand and the expressions he makes. If that was a standalone short film, it would be outstanding and probably would have won some minor awards. Uh, the effects on that were amazing. Um, the, that being said, Spider-Man 2 won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. That visual effects director did not return for Spider-Man 3. The new one had worked with him before, and between that new one and the production company they were using, they created over 900 visual effects shots, many of which with brand new programs that were specifically built for this film that are now used in other films. They also would use miniatures and cityscapes and whatnot. In order for the sand to work the way it did, they would take sand and they would study how it moved when it was poured over ledges, 
across people's faces when it was thrown through the air, splashing up against people. There's a really cool scene in the movie where Spider-Man and Sandman are in the armored car, and Spider-Man goes to punch him, and because he's made out of sand, his fist goes right through the middle. What they took was an amputee who was actually an awards-winning martial artist who was missing his arm from just past his elbow up and used that for that visual midsection punch. Very practical effects. Looked absolutely great. Uh, Venom's suit had some differences. For those who are big fans of the comic and remember when the alien suit first appeared, the alien suit was jet black with the white spider insignia stretched out wide across the chest and the white eyes. For this film, they decided to make it a black, twisted version of Spider-Man's suit. To the point that even when Peter is in the black suit, it just looks like his regular suit, but black instead. Um, they gave it a, they wanted to stick with the web motif, and anytime you see Topher Grace's Venom, when he's in the suit, moving around, his very cat-like, feline-like references, the way he moved, they studied the way big cats, like, panthers and jaguars moved when it came time for the just a symbiote to move around rather than make it move like a spider or an octopus they wanted it to kind of just roll almost uh there were many many deleted scenes with venom many deleted scenes and tover grace has not been quiet about that I know a lot of bugaboo got made about the scenes with Jared Leto's Joker getting edited and pared down from Suicide Squad. This happened long before that and included alternate endings where the the symbiote consumed Eddie Brock down to his skeleton and then still tried to rebond with Parker before Parker took him out with a very similar way that he took him out in this movie with the loud sound causing him pain. Um... Uh, Grace has felt that a Spider-Man 3.5 essentially could have been made that would have included a lot of the deleted scenes that he said added to his the characterization and the way he portrayed Venom. I don't know if that would have helped. I don't know if that would have hurt. It went through a pretty serious marketing campaign. Uh, they decorated a lot of the city of New York. There were a lot of toys. Again, another video game, which is where a, another good chunk of the budget was spent. By the way... Probably a full 30% of the film's total budget was spent solely on special effects. Which, when you think about the fact that you had to pay actors, cameramen, extras, that's an astounding amount to have spent on that. 30%, that's, that's essentially $30 million were spent just on these special effects alone. It was released April 30th of 2007 massive advance interest in this film as well as advanced ticket sales actually prompted more than just a midnight premiere. They actually had 3 a.m. showtimes as well. Nowadays, it's not at all uncommon for, okay, the movie's releasing on Friday. Well, they're going to start showing it Thursday at 8 or Thursday at 10, whatever the case may be. Personally, I got to see Avengers Endgame Thursday at 8.30 in the evening. A massive home video campaign went out as well which contributed to its overall gross that this movie has made and eventually they did release an editor's cut in 2017 that had a couple of new scenes in it but only cut out about five minutes out of the, out of the original film 
made $336.5 million in North America during its run and $558.4 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing Sony Columbia film until Skyfall, James Bond movie, came out in 2012. It was the highest grossing Spider-Man film again until Far From Home and set many, many records when it opened. Every single record that it set were first passed by The Dark Knight in 2008 and then Avengers in 2011, 2012. So, as good as it was, it eventually got passed up. Um, it got mixed reviews. Many of the reviews felt that there were too many villains. They did not care for the what is now known as emo Parker phase. Uh, I personally remember watching this movie in theaters and there was an uncomfortable laughter rippling through the theater when he began to dance. I'm not going to harp on about that because it's been done to death. Uh, the dance is terrible. Really, this movie did a lot of damage and Sam Raimi himself has since called it awful. It was he did not enjoy working on it. He felt that it was an insult towards what he had done with the first two movies, as well as what the other actors had done with the first two movies. It's widely agreed that it was studio interference, disagreements between Ron Raimi and other issues therein, which are really what ended up derailing this film from what it really could have been. They initially planned on a fourth and fifth movie, uh, John Malkovich was reportedly in talks to play Adrian Toomes, the Vulture, and Hathaway was going to appear as Felicia Hardy, also known as the Black Cat, and they had planned on a Venom spinoff, implying that, oh, the suit actually, the symbiote did not die. Every single one of these things was canceled when Sam Raimi left the project shortly into the very early development of Spider-Man 4. When it comes down to it, the bottom line, they wanted Venom in this movie for toys that's it they didn't want another sympathetic uh scientist villain in the movie because they'd had one of the first two which i'm sorry if you look at spider-man's rogues gallery that that's a that's a batman phrase but still his his villains the sheer amount of them that are also scientists i mean you got kurt connor's craven the hunter alistair smythe dr octopus to an extent, Harry Osborn and Norman Osborn. Uh, there, there's so many others as well that it is. it made no sense that that would be their biggest issue with it. That being said, easily the highlight of this movie, to me and many others, was Thomas Hayden Church's performance as the Sandman. They did an amazing job of making him a sympathetic villain... And really, he, he commands the presence whenever he's on screen. 100%. You know, Thomas Hayden Church, to me, did a definitive job on this role. And it's going to be very, very difficult to surpass that. That all being said, y'all, the Raimi trilogy's terrible. They don't hold up today. For the most part. Um... I say, for the most part, I still hold Spider-Man 2 in personal high esteem. But some of that is purely nostalgia. Because I, I was a kid when those movies came out. 
and I love them. But I can differentiate that as an adult. Sony, of course, owned rights to the character. They don't own the character, but they own rights to the character. And they needed to make a new Spider-Man movie every so often in order to prevent those rights from reverting back to Marvel. The problem with this was not enough time had gone by from Spider-Man 3 for a reboot to truly be as successful as it could have been. Mark Webb's Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2, to me, capture a much better essence of the character of Peter Parker and Spider-Man than the Raimi trilogy does. Leaning a little bit more towards Spider-Man than Peter Parker. Uh, Tobey Maguire was a very, very underrated Peter Parker. But frankly, a bad fit as Spider-Man himself. Meanwhile, Andrew Garfield did a spot-on perfect job as Peter Parker. Or, I mean, as uh, Spider-Man, rather. But his Peter Parker... Parker's not supposed to be the cool outcast, the cool nerd. The way they portrayed him, that he, he skateboards and he takes pictures and he stands up for people... That wouldn't be the kid that gets picked on. Just, it would not. And, unfortunately, studio interference played a part in why that also fell apart. Because the studio really wanted to shoehorn Green Goblin and the death of Gwen Stacy into Amazing Spider-Man 2. Which, I feel, was entirely unnecessary. They did a perfectly serviceable job of what they did, and... If you're going to do that, they should have killed off Gwen if they were going to in the third movie. Hell, do it at the beginning of the third movie. Fans know who the Green Goblin is. They know who Gwen Stacy is. If you start that movie off with the death of Gwen Stacy, and then you have to have Peter coming to terms with that and deciding to be, he has to continue as Spider-Man, rather than cramming all of that into the last seven minutes of the movie, I'm getting a little off base. The, the Mark Webb Spider-Man movies are not without their flaws, and they are damn sure not without their detractors. Many, many, many people do not like Andrew Garfield and that role. I personally thought he did a perfectly serviceable job. Then Sony came to an agreement with Disney, and we got Spider-Man brought into the MCU. Tom Holland does a perfect job as both. Full stop. We've gotten great Spider-Man movies out of him and great appearances as Spider-Man out of him. And it, in turn, has led to the success. Okay, well, that was successful. We'll go with this. They now have the Tom Hardy Venom movies, which will cross over with Spider-Man at some point. We have a Morbius movie starring Jared Leto coming out in a, a few months. Craven the Hunter movie is coming out. Uh, Mahershala Ali will be portraying Blade. Like, they, they are building towards something with this. And, of course... No Way Home. We cannot talk about a Spider-Man movie without mentioning what No Way Home is going to be. The, according to the trailer on No Way Home, you have Doctor Strange working a spell to remove people's memories of Peter being Spider-Man. It gets screwed up, opens up a, more, a multiversal event, and in the first trailer, we not only get to hear the voice, the laughter of Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin... But we get to see Dr. Octavius, Alfred Molina, has returned. I'm very much looking forward to that. There's a very high possibility that Sandman is in this movie. There's a possibility that Lizard is in this movie. And while they are denying the rumors, and understandably so, there is a very, very strong possibility, if not outright guarantee, that both Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield will be returning as their versions of Peter Parker in this movie. 
as well as there being a possibility that Matt Murdock, Daredevil from the Netflix Daredevil series, will be in this. So, ultimately, we will see. Uh, again, my thoughts, I don't love the movie. I don't hate it, but I don't love the movie. It's not without its flaws, but it's also not without some sense of charm to it. It does have some replay value if you enjoy it. There are some moments where you... This is probably the most realistic depiction of what the relationship between Mary Jane and Peter would be in this series, in this movie. Um, there are some issues that I have with Harry Osborn, although I do think that James Franco did the best job he could with what he had. The very doofy amnesia angle aside... Uh, Overall, like I said, if you if you if you're listening to me talk about this, you've seen it, and you chances are you enjoy it while simultaneously disliking the Amazing Spider-Man movies, and that's okay. You don't have to like the same things I do, and I don't have to like the same things you do. So, with that being said, I'm really looking forward to No Way Home. I feel like we're going to get some closure for a lot of the Toby fans, and I think we're going to get some closure for other Andrew Garfield fans as well with this. But this was Spider-Man Three. Uh, next week's episode, I'm not certain if it's actually going to drop next week or it might drop the week after that. But if it does drop next week, it will be on another, based on a true story film, uh, The Perfect Storm. And Cal, the kaiju guy, will once again be joining me for that because he and I are both tremendous fans of that film. Uh, until then, I hope you all have an excellent week. I hope you've learned a little bit of something today, and I can't wait to talk about the next one. I can't wait for the next Spider-Man movie. I just can't wait for a whole lot of things. So that all being said, I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.